The Guardian. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So goes the infamous rewritten proclamation in George Orwell's novel Animal Farm, amended from All Animals Are Equal by the pigs as they begin to take over the farm and increasingly resemble humans. This was written at the time as an allegory for the Soviet Union's politics. But looking at it today, it might perhaps reveal something about our psychology. As the pigs become more human, they become more equal. They are the ruling class. They are better, superior. It's an idea that has long been part of our narrative as a species, that we humans are not like all those other animals. But, of course, we are. We're made of bones and blood and muscles. We get diseases. We give birth. Our closest living relatives are chimpanzees, and we are part of the Earth's ecosystem. So why do we struggle so much with accepting ourselves as animals? And can doing so help us in our relationships with other species and the planet? Yes, we have a huge amount of of cultural and technological um, skills and behaviours that are profoundly a part of what we are, but that create this illusion that we're somehow not embedded still in the environment, that we're not influenced by the environment, and we're not somehow influencing the environment. I'm Madeline Finlay. And you're listening to Science Weekly. To delve into this question, I spoke to Melanie Challenger, whose recent book, How to Be Animal, asks what it really means to be human, an animal that has come to dominate and influence the planet in significant and wide-ranging ways. Melanie, I'm interested in what initially inspired you to look at this question of what it means to be a human and also what it means to be an animal? It goes back many, many years. So I started working in environmental history and I was looking really at the um, way in which we have ended up causing the kinds of biodiversity crisis, climate change, ending up with this really seemingly destructive relationship with with the environment and and with our home, with the planet. And I was sort of piecing together the puzzle through history of how we'd got to that stage. And at the core of that, it came up over and over again in in countries all around the, the world and different cultures and different points in time was essentially human exceptionalism. So this idea that humans are somehow separate to the rest of nature, that we're allowed to do this because we're a superior creature or that we're not even creatures at all. And that was really the starting point. Um, I thought that is a very odd thing. The way that we define ourselves as being human, distinguishing us from other animals, as well as elevating our position in the animal kingdom, or even, as you said, putting ourselves outside it entirely. Why do you think we want to make ourselves special as a species? There's several reasons behind it, really. The first reason is that there's lots that's actually quite troubling about being an animal. So human beings are extraordinary. Human beings are exceptional. 
exceptional doesn't have to mean superior, you know, but we are certainly extraordinary. We have um, a well-developed moral sense. We have abstract ideas and we have access to very self-reflective, subjective consciousness. The corollary to that is that it it shows us things that we don't really like about being animal. So it shows us that we're going to die. And because of the way that our memories work, the fact that we can plan for the future, then we see this future in which we'll no longer be there. And that's very frightening to people. Even if they have spiritual beliefs, we can see this in studies that even people who have very strong spiritual beliefs still find it um, frightening to accept that that we will die and and that those that we love will die. But it's not just death. Of course, there's disease and any kinds of sort of existential um, dangers that people's people face, you know, everything from being thirsty to a drought to um, food shortages. These are all aspects of being an animal that are frightening to us. And then if we look at our abstract ideas, so we think about morality, well, we look out into nature and it looks completely amoral out there. You know, Darwin is is really famously um, wrote to a friend of his, the botanist Asa Gray, to say, you know, when he was coming up with his theories of evolution, saying, God, you know, this is really troubling my faith because I cannot make sense of why God would have made, you know, parasitic wasps that, you know, go inside another insect and eat their way out as their way of living. This looks horrible. So, you know, how, how can this be? It's amoral out there. That amorality of nature can be problematic for humans as we try to make sense of what's right or wrong and what parts of our behaviour are right or wrong. So the easiest thing to do, of course, is to cut ourselves off from, from nature and to have morality have nothing to do with the natural world. Do you think this is why we can often find our own bodies a little bit disgusting and gross? Um, Yes. There are some really fantastic studies on this. There's an area of psychology called terror management theory. Now, that's quite contested and you don't have to sign up to all aspects of it. But the researchers who've been working in this field over the last maybe sort of 20 years or so in psychology, essentially they're arguing because we're frightened of dying, anything about being animal and anything about our bodies that sort of slightly disgusts us or might prompt us to think about this, we hide away or we have a strong reaction to. And they look at things like menstruation, for instance, and the sort of taboos that there are all around the world with regard to menstruation. They talk about the way that women's bodies have been objectified, but also seen as threatening because, you know, the way that people respond to breastfeeding in public, things like that. These reminders of our animal being um, can be hidden away from us. And they argue that's originating from a fear of death. But there are some sort of further um, very compelling studies, I think, that look more at two different areas that relate to this. One is the idea that it's it's not death per se, but really any existential threat. So blood, for instance, you know, can have lots of sort of pathogens in it. And any of the sort of leaky parts of our bodies will have pathogens in them. So some of that kind of disgust response is actually part of an innate immune response to the fact that we are coming up against someone or something that, you know, that might have pathogens. And that's particularly strong, of course, if it's someone who's not in our household, who's not someone that we might have regular contact with. 
one of the things I think that's been so cruel about the COVID pandemic is that, you know, people have been going through incredibly stressful experiences. People have been in hospitals with diseases. People have, you know, lost loved ones and they've not been able to physically be close to one another and comfort one another. That has a real effect on us and our bodies because we're social animals. So when we're close to one another, you know, someone who we trust and who we have a good relationship with, we touch one another and that touch, that will have an effect on that individual's body. It will lower their heart rate. It will um, release hormones into their body that help their body to cope with this incredibly stressful thing that they're going through. What's extraordinary about human beings is that we buffer ourselves through ideas as well. So we can have the same sorts of benefits from ideas that reassure us. And one of the ideas that really buffers us is this idea that we're not really animals, that we're safe from what we don't like about being animals and that humans are a superior kind of animal. And again, there's been some really interesting studies tracking this and looking at the way in which particularly when we're under threat or stress in some kind of way, we tend to favour the narrative that humans are on this sort of progressive, um, unique path and, and can escape being, being animals in some way. This conflict between knowing that we are essentially animals and yet wanting to separate ourselves from that nature you talk about as the civil war of the mind. Tell me about that. The civil war of the mind is really the idea that in having our sort of minds become aware of ourselves, so having subjective consciousness, has created this this sort of tension within us between what we are and what we can choose to think that we are. What I actually look at there much more is the oddness of mind body dualism. So this is the idea that there is something that what we really are, our real identity as humans, are our thinking parts of us. So our minds, our thoughts. If you go back to Descartes, Descartes would have said, well, we're really the only being that's got a mind. Um, And so it's defining for what humans are. And other animals don't have minds. They're really just mechanical, instinctive beings. That idea really was still with us by the time you get to the Enlightenment and you get sort of big philosophers like John Locke and um, Kant, who also argued that it is the abilities of our minds that ultimately matter. And in fact, so extraordinary are these abilities that, you know, in some ways they they, um, are separable from our bodies and that it's these that really matter. So you hear people talking about the fact that we're going to download our minds and live forever, or that we'll transfer more and more of our minds over to machines, that we can build artificial intelligences that will somehow um, rank higher than our, our kind of intelligence, and we'll need to catch up with them. All of these sorts of ideas originate in this kind of mind body dualism. And what follows from this often is that our bodies are belittled and even seen as something threatening to this idea. 
Um, so we don't pay enough attention to the way that our whole body and our environment affects our consciousness or is implicated in it, in our minds, how much the whole of our body and our lived experience is part of, of our valuable life. But the danger in this is that we neglect all that is really precious and important about an animal life. And that really, that really worries me. One thing I'd like to draw out here is in thinking that our minds make us superior to other animals and define our humanity, it also allows us to rank humans as well, something that has been used to advance misogynistic, xenophobic and racist ideas based in so-called scientific theories about others being less human and Of course, we know that these awful ideas are wrong, um, but sometimes defining what makes us human, and perhaps animal as well, can lead us down some dangerous paths in terms of creating hierarchies where none should exist. Having explored some of these issues, what are your thoughts? These are these are gnarly, gnarly ideas. They are very difficult in as much as there aren't easy answers. But what I would say is that, you know, to try and condense down something that's quite complex into something that, that's um, easier to understand, I think, is that that sort of hierarchical, hierarchical approach to morality has never served us well. Throughout history and until very recently, we've tended to view people with a different skin colour as having less mind, less ability, less feelings, less secondary emotions, and therefore we're more justified in, in, for instance, enslaving people. Women, of course, throughout history were, were thought to be sort of incapable of rational thought or reason, and therefore, again, were justified in being under um, patriarchal control. They are nonsense ideas, but they follow from using biological hierarchical ideas to justify what we do. The extraordinary thing is that you can actually see this playing out in the body. So there's some sort of emerging studies from psychology and neuroscience that are starting to show the way that when we use hierarchies or we're thinking in hierarchical ways, we can actually switch off the parts of our sort of prefrontal kind of social cognition that look for and respond to um, the feelings and ideas and needs and intelligence of others when it's not convenient to us or when we want to disregard them. And to follow from that, I guess I would say that for me, what's unique and beautiful about human beings is our morality, actually. This sort of range of aspects of our biology that we draw on in order to have compassion, in order to empathise, in order to have insights into one another's minds and intentions and experiences and to care more than just about our children, our relatives, more than just about our friends and our group, but to have the ability to care about a hamster, an elephant, you know, someone miles and miles away, I find just extraordinary. And actually, um, we should get better at playing to the strengths of that and building our morality around those aspects of of our behaviour, rather than singling out something in one of our traits and and using that um, in a kind of hierarchy. Yet, Melanie, in some ways we are returning to some of these ideas about 
better humans with new biotechnologies, whether that's linking ourselves up to computers or eventually putting our brains on the cloud, like you mentioned, or maybe even extending our lifespans by incorporating robotics into our bodies, all of which are really abstracting ourselves away from being animals. What's your view on this? At a straightforward level, it concerns me in terms of the ethics behind it all and what's enabling it all at the moment. Because a lot of this research is really happening in our big, obscenely wealthy big tech companies. So Elon Musk is is kind of heavily involved in a lot of this sort of stuff. He did Neuralink implanting a brain machine interface into the uh, brain of a, of a pig so that eventually we'll be able to have these kind of seamless interactions um, with other computers. But, you know, within that, they're also talking about the idea that we, you know, we can enhance our cognition, right? We can enhance our intelligence. So move on this path to sort of super intelligence. Um, there are some things that are deeply disturbing about this. So one is that it still works on this idea of biological superiority. So some idea that you can make a better kind of human. And again, this isn't just sci-fi stuff. This is really happening. There are really people who are talking about using things like CRISPR. So this is um, a, a gene editing tool or, and also a genome editing tool um, to actually design forms of humans that might be better, smarter. The danger that we have is there's usually a Trojan horse in this kind of thing. Now, I work within bioethics, so I kind of see this, you know, land on my table where someone will come forward and say, well, we're going to just do this bit of research and we'll get rid of Alzheimer's. or we're going to do this bit of research and we'll get rid of this really horrible genetic disease that affects young children. And what that can do is open the way when you look at the commercial interests of the companies to these nuttier kind of um, applications, which often involve human enhancement. Um, And there is absolutely no justice in how we think about what human enhancement is. There's no discussion with publics about what they might think a better human might look like. It's a very dangerous path to go down. Better is a value assumption. It's not necessarily something you can engineer. As to whether I think it is possible um, to save us through biotech. Certainly, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for synthetic biology and for CRISPR being well applied um, to resolving some things that are that are miserable, like certain kinds of diseases. I think a properly targeted application is positive, but it's the idea that humans are on some sort of progressive journey towards kind of being saved from all they dislike about being animal uh, or even saved from the kind of temporariness of being animal altogether is just it's a myth and i still remain highly unconvinced that there's any evidence at the moment that you would build a better happier human if they were half robotic or indeed just a bit of cloud computing on a a bit of silicon. So I, um, I think it's we're on a hiding to nothing with it, but it does have some dangerous implications. Coming back to that initial idea that prompted you to ask this question, our relationship with our environment and our planet, what kind of benefits in that area do you think there are to recognising and embracing ourselves as animals? 
Well, the most immediate one, of course, is that um, we sort of need to think ourselves back in um, to to the environment and to our relationship with other life forms. Yes, we have a huge amount of, of cultural and technological um, skills and behaviours that are profoundly a part of what we are, but that create this illusion that we're somehow not embedded still in the environment, that we're not influenced by the environment, and we're not somehow influencing the environment. You know, obviously climate change, uh, the fact that our actions, what we are doing, literally how many of us there are, and what each of those individuals is doing in terms of energy, is changing our Earth's systems. We have a situation at the moment, you know, where the way that the biomass of, of mammals, for instance, is weighted, you know, there's about four to five percent of wild mammals left, around about sort of coming up to 30 percent um, humans, and the rest are animals whose lives are domesticated as a food source for us. That's a huge influence on what the makeup of life on Earth looks like. But we cut ourselves off from that, you know, at a psychological, at an ideological, at a moral level, we still cut ourselves off. And yet our influence ignores that boundary. And we're going to need to think, what kind of animal do we want to be? What do we want our legacy to be? What kinds of relationships with other animals and species do we want to have? We are actually at the stage with our global societies where we've got to think about what we want life on Earth to look like because our influence is just enormous now. And understanding ourselves as animal will be essential to those discussions, I think. So, Melanie, in the spirit of writing ourselves back in, what's your favourite thing about being an animal? Oh, God, that's a good question. Um, what's my favourite thing about being animal? Do you know... I should say my children, of course, you know, the smell of your child's head, right? One of the things that's so extraordinary about carers with their children is that when we smell our children's heads, this extraordinary thing that we all do, and we don't really know why we're doing it, but we all do it, it changes the hormones in our body. So I ought to say the smell of my baby's head. But one of the things that I find just most delicious about being human is the feeling of spring sunshine on my face. You know, I live in the middle of a forest, um, so most of my neighbours are not humans. Um, and so we have foxes and we have adders and we have um, deer and we have, you know, goshawks, all sorts out here. And I see all of these creatures also coming out into the spring sunshine and also kind of lifting up their heads. Certainly the kind of rabbits and the, 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 the mammals, they're lifting their little faces up to the sunshine and having this kind of hazy look of pleasure. You know, it's been a really tough winter and I feel a sense of solidarity with all of the humans on our planet and all of the kind of other species who might come out this spring and do the same thing and just lift their faces to the sun and just remember that is such an animal thing to to feel that kind of the pleasure of the warmth drench your body from tip to toe so yeah I, I reckon that's my favorite I think there are many many listeners now who will be looking forward to exactly the same thing <laughs> Melanie thank you so much for joining us on the podcast oh it's an absolute pleasure Thanks again to Melanie. We've put a link to her book, How to Be Animal, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. 
If you have any questions or comments for us here on the podcast, you can email in at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. That's it from us this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.